0: I was for the lights to come on and make it more dramatic, but apparently I, uh, I failed in my attempt. It is awesome to be here. Um, we're actually in our fifth week of our series called God and Country, and we believe that the Bible speaks into these things, although uh, a lot of people would tell you there's two things you don't talk about together, or maybe at all, politics and religion, so we thought we would just make a mess of things and put them all together, and we'd have several weeks of a series about it. We're going to actually look at it from different angles. And, uh, and today I can't wait to get into the text. We're actually going to be in Jeremiah 29. If you are an overachiever and you want to get there, um, that's where we're going to be. Jeremiah chapter 29. <clears throat> now you have to bear with me a little bit, because apparently my sinuses just flared up right before I walked up here, so which means I probably have several drink breaks in the process. But Jeremiah 29. Well, as we uh, kind of get into this text, we're going to actually start in verse 4 in just a few minutes, but I thought by way of introduction uh, into the topic today, I would kind of tell you about something that that grieves me, but then also something that that used to excite me when I was a kid. What grieves me is my cardinals got clobbered this weekend by the Braves. Of all teams to get beat by, it's going to be the Braves. I mean, they destroyed them. No, no, no. Timing was not right on that, but when I was a kid I, I just I dreamt of being a St Louis Cardinal. This is back in the heyday of when they actually used to be good and when they used to win World Series championships and, uh, and so I just dreamt of being uh, a St. Louis Cardinal several times maybe just like you, I would get in the backyard with all the neighbor kids, and we would put together a game and throw out some bases and you know, and, and our goal was to win, or you know, whatever, at least to get a hit, or whatever the case may be. Um, but when we were kids, I used to live right next door to uh, a set of brothers, and it was great because there was always a game to be had. So my brother and I would go against them. Sometimes we'd have some other kids who would come into the neighborhood, and they would play, or in, from the neighborhood into our house, and we would play. And we would just have this this big setup thing in the backyard, very elaborate. Um, it, I remember it very vividly. We would start on one side of, of my yard, going through my yard into their yard and a home run was into the driveway of the neighbor's yard or, you know, into the, the neighbor's property. So if you got a home run, it was a good thing. Um, so what we decided to do was uh, on one specific day, we had played wiffle ball and tennis ball. I mean, that's fun and that's exciting. We decided that we would see how far we could actually hit it, um, a real ball in the neighborhood. And I I didn't grow up in the country. It was the city. So so we got out there, and, you know, we're fairly young, and we thought, you know what? We're going to do this. No big deal. So we got away with it for a little while, and we have our little game going on. But then all of a sudden, I don't even remember who it was, but all I remember is the sound. Somebody got a hold of one, and that thing went sky high, real baseball. And it went so high and so high, and everybody looked to see if it was going to be a home run. It was not a home run. It was in the warning track. Coincidentally, the warning track was my neighbor's uh, car window. That's what that was. So the ball just came in and just right in the back of a Maxima, uh, of a Nissan Maxima, a nice car just boom, just shatter that back glass. We did what anyone does, uh, kids do in this situation. Turn and run, run in the house, pretend like nothing happened, right? I mean, that's just what you do. Um, We eventually got found out. But here's the thing. When we were out playing baseball, baseball has rules. Even we knew that. We were little kids. Baseball has rules. If, if baseball didn't have rules, it would just be a stick and a rock and just seeing how far you could hit it. But baseball has rules. As Pete Rose found out, there are some written rules and unwritten rules. But there are unwritten and written rules to baseball. And without the rules of baseball, it would just be a stick, and a rock. What we're going to find out today is, and I'm so glad that this is in the Scriptures, I'm so glad that God makes this explicitly clear, that God has put something into His Word, into the promises of His Word, to help us, to give us guidelines, to give us rules for living. Not just suggestions, but rules. Because bottom line, what God wants for us is he wants us to succeed. He wants us to prosper. He wants all humans to prosper. And the beautiful thing is this. Even in times of chaos, even in times of confusion, even in times of doubt, even in times of fear, that the purpose of a Christian not only exists, but it gets stronger. So even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of of severe stress and pain and hardship, our purpose as a Christian, it doesn't just exist, but it gets stronger. Bottom line for today is this. our Our Heavenly Father provides virtues for every aspect of life, even in the darkest situations even in the darkest situations, even in the darkest situations that we can, we can praise our good, good father. Even in the darkest of situations, we can sing and we can believe it when we sing it that, that his love never fails, that we can experience that, not to just a level where we would just communicate it, that we would believe it with our whole heart. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to know where we're coming from. We believe that there is a God who loves you, Who loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And for people just like you. Not the better version of you, but the broken version of you. That he died for the broken version of you so that you could be whole and mended. But he did what he did. And we have to do what we're supposed to do. He has given us the opportunity for eternal life. But we have to receive eternal life. And we do that through repentance. By turning away from our, our wickedness and our sin, from our past, and believing that God, believing that God sent his son to earth for us, so not only could we just live in heaven after we leave this earth, but that we could have abundant life while we're here. That's that is that is the gospel message. That is pure and as simple as I can give it to you. But that's the reason why we're here. So when I get into this text, and some of this is going to be challenging for you. Some of this is. But some of life is difficult. And oftentimes we have to reflect upon things in our past so that we truly understand where we are right now. So you're going to see that. And as a matter of fact, that's what happens in in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. Near about the same time, there was another prophet by the name of Ezekiel. They, they prophesied or they declared God's truth in two different ways. And I want to give you a little cheat so you understand the context a little bit of this. Jeremiah was a prophet to Jerusalem. There's two J's. And Ezekiel was a prophet to the exiles, two E's. So at the same time, Jeremiah, and there's some overlap, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're prophesying. They're, they're, they're bringing God's message to God's people. But specifically in Jeremiah, because that's the text we're in this morning, Jeremiah's message was this. He most likely was a wealthy person. He, he lasted his... Uh, the time that he was a prophet was through the reign of five kings. He was never tainted by the politics of the day. Never. Five kings. Never tainted. So in the midst of Jeremiah's ministry to these people, he had direct contact with the king. And several kings. But one king specifically stands out in the scriptures. And it's it's a king by the name of Zedekiah. Now Zedekiah was a special kind of stupid. He, he really was. He was a special kind of stupid. Zedekiah, after, after receiving God's warning several times, Zedekiah says, No thanks, Jeremiah. We're going to do it all our, on our own. I don't need you right now. I'm not listening to you right now. Jeremiah wants you to go away. Well, Jeremiah didn't go away because he was God's spokesperson to those people. He stood his ground. Eventually, he actually went into, he went into prison. Jeremiah did. He was thrown into prison. Eventually, he was let out. He got a little reprieve. Maybe the king felt bad about what he was doing. But as Jeremiah comes out of the prison, his, his message not only exists, but it gets stronger. And it gets stronger, and it gets more, more potent for God's people in that day. And his message was this. If you At first, it was if you do not turn away from your wicked ways, you're going to lose the land that you live on. You're going to be exiled into Babylon. And he brought that message over and over and over. King didn't want to hear it. So eventually, the city was besieged by the Babylonians. Many people died. God's people at the time were taken out of Jerusalem, and they were slung into the Babylonian empire. And what they tried to do is the Babylonians would take you into their empire, and they would try and retrain your brain. They would retrain your worship. They would retrain your language. And they would make you inundated with what they believe and how they believe and their method and modes of worship. So as they would go into the Babylonian empire, now they would just be scrambled eggs, And then the Babylonians, just in their wickedness, they would sometimes send them back to their homeland. In this situation that we find ourselves this morning in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is speaking this message to the people. But as we jump into it, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about what God could have said through Jeremiah to the people. What he could have said was, Go hide. Build bunkers. Respond in fear. The king's the boss. Stay away from the Babylonians. But it may surprise you what God's response is. Let's go to the scriptures and find out what it is. Verse 4 This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's the message. Everything I just told you, here's the message. This is God's word through Jeremiah to God's people at the time. Build bunkers. Wait, 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 wait. It doesn't say that. Sorry. Sorry, I got I got ahead of myself. Verse five, what does it say? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. What? So are you telling me that God sends a message through Jeremiah, all that Jeremiah has gone through, and Jeremiah brings the message to God's people at the time, and he says, build houses, settle down, Plant gardens, marry, and have some babies. Like To me, humanly speaking, that just doesn't compute because we live in the 21st century, and our response is so different. Our response in the 21st century is to run and hide. Our response in the 21st century is to, to send out zingers on Facebook and hide behind what somebody else says. That's what we, that's what we tend to do. And when God gives this message, it's with the absolute security of his protection. It's with the security of his protection. I wonder how we look, if you're a Christian, I wonder on your your social media feeds and the things that you say at work and emails that you send and emails that you circulate, I wonder how you look to unbelievers, I wonder if they look at what what you have, your your life of faith, and think, wow, I want some of that. Or I wonder if they look at your life of faith and say, wow, it looks just like mine. I wonder. These people had an absolute security in God. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. As a matter of fact, we're actually going to pick up next week in verse 7. We're going to see what that means. But I, I do want to jump from verse 10... Um, down just a few verses after that because here's, here's the message. God had just clearly given them the truth that, hey, you're going to be exiles. This isn't going to be a happy time for you. You're leaving the land of promise that, 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 that you've had for centuries. You're losing that, and you're going to leave that. But look what he says in the, in, uh, starting in verse 10. He says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise and bring you back to this place. So he says, after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back home. That's about two generations. He says, after about 70 years, I'm going to bring you back home. And he says, and I know you've heard this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. Oh, my goodness. What if there were some promises there that we could take hold of? Right here in the 21st century. What if there were some promises there that we could just say, wow, I, I believe this, God. I believe that I'm a child of God. I've given my life to you, and, and I've, I've, I've given you my sin and my shame, and the promise of the gospel has been received to my soul, and I know that I'm saved. And you could declare this for yourself, that you would go through and say, you know what? God, I know the plans that you have for me. I know that I have a future. I know that I have hope. I know that when I call upon your name that you're going to hear me. Wow. Wow wow, what if that could be something that was just so etched into our experience? What if these promises became the filter that we said and we did things? What if these things became the filter of which we truly believed and and received everything that's going on in the world around us? Because the way that they were going to, to believe, first in starting in verse four through verse seven, verse 6, rather. The reason why they believe this is because they had an experience with God beforehand, but then also God says, here's the truth of the situation. Your sin and rebellion has led you to this place. But after 70 years, after 70 years, about two generations, he says, not your kids, but your grandbabies. There's going to be a day where they go back home but he says, until then, don't build a bunker. Don't send out those zingers. He says, don't do that. Build homes. Settle down. Plant a garden. Which I love the wording of the garden because a garden takes time. And because in their culture, a garden would sustain them, not just for a year, but for year upon year upon year. So God is saying, That my promise is true, and the truth is, this is the situation that you're in, but he gives a grace element, and that's why I want to read, starting in verse 10, the grace element. He says, after 70 years, things are going to be different for you, but for now, this is what I want you to do. I want to kind of maybe paint a picture, um, and maybe you're confused on exile, so here's my definition of the word exile. This is important because if you're a Christian, really if you're, Um, even if you're not a Christian, this is kind of your story. Maybe you don't know it, but an exile is, uh, it means that there's enemies forcing people to leave their homes and live in an unfamiliar place. It's being forced to leave their home. I I just have this mental image of the Christians in northern Iraq that have been run out of their home and they say either convert, flee, or die um, when they're being forced to, to convert to Islam. And many of them Have left, and many of them, of course, have died. But an exile means there's an enemy that's forcing people to leave their homes and live in an unfamiliar place. Now, we all are exiles. We all are exiles. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to go through all 66 books of the Bible in about three minutes. It's neat, I've been practicing being auctioneer, so this should work really, really well for me. Here it is. God created a home, it's called Eden. God created a family, that was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve blew it, and they sinned. This is Genesis 3. God sent them out of Eden into exile. He made them leave the garden, they could not come back. So now, all of a sudden, they were enemies of God. They were enemies of God, so God became their enemy in that situation. So God says, you have sinned, you've committed sin. Now he casts them out of the garden, still in Genesis 3. The next one, after God sent them out of Eden into exile, they lived in exile, and they did this for century upon century. God promised that they would return home. God promised that they would return home. Keep it going. We've got more on the list. Go to the next slide, Lex. People pointed to one leading some home. These would be the prophets, Old Testament. They pointed to to one, you see this capital O, it's Jesus, pointing to one, pointing to Jesus that he would uh, be leading some home. Jesus gave us the narrow path home. This is in the Gospels. God taught people how to wait. That would be the epistles of Paul. And the last thing, we see this in Revelation God brings his people home. That's the Bible. 66 books, probably under three minutes. That was really good. And you were nervous. So for you and I, we're all in, in the day and age that we're living in, we're all exiles. So so the storyline of the Israelites in this situation is our storyline. We're all exiles too. We, if you're a follower of Christ, we're longing for our heavenly home. But until we get into our heavenly home, we live here. This is our home. This is the place where we're supposed to settle down. This is the place where we're supposed to, you're going to see next week, seek the good of the city. This is the place where we're supposed to plant gardens and sustain life. This is the place where we're supposed to to have godly children. This is the place where we're we're supposed to hold marriage in high esteem. This is the place, and we're living as exiles. So their story is our story. But unfortunately, the exiles, for them, it means that they had lost everything. They had lost everything except their home. So imagine this, if you would. So, so God, God tells them hey, you're, you're going to be exiled, you're going to go to Babylon, you're leaving Jerusalem, you probably can't take much with you. He says, maybe one suitcase, if they had such a thing. So they're taking, they're taking a suitcase, and God says, as soon as they get into the new home, He says, not nah, just go ahead and put it up in the attic. And you know the things in the attic, right? You know the things that go in the attic are the things that you're just like, you know what, if you put something in the attic, you know you're going to be there a while. Who likes to move, by the way? Anyone? Raise your hand if you like to move. It might, uh, you you like to move. Awesome. Who does not like to move? Does not like to move? Yeah. I don't like to move either. The only thing good about moving is this. You find all the junk you have in the attic, right? And, and all the stuff that you thought you couldn't live without that you haven't seen. I mean, you know, you move, and then all of a sudden you find the the parachute pants, the break into electric, uh, electric boogaloo, VCR tape because DVDs didn't exist back then. And all of a sudden, you go through the archives of your life, and you're like, wow, I couldn't live without this, but you just knew that the 80s were coming back, so you held on to it tightly, right? Like for them, God tells them, hey, you're going to, you're you're leaving Jerusalem, and when you get to Babylon, just put your suitcase in there because you're going to be here for 70 years. Just make this home. Just make this home. Because when you make this home, and you settle in, it's going to improve your life. See, next week, it's going to improve the city that you live in. And yet, I want to tell you this. I think this is important, too, because I look at the landscape of, uh, of our country right now, and oftentimes we think that freedom is the the virtue that we have to live by. Like we pursue freedom, and in any time any sort of freedom is infringed upon, we're like, whoa, 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 no, that's a freedom we have. But freedom actually doesn't provide virtue at all. Freedom does not provide virtue. Freedom does not provide virtue for life. Freedom requires virtues for life, or it will destroy itself. If you don't believe me, this is what Benjamin Franklin said Only a virtuous people. That's a morally good people. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Think about that. Masters that they can't think for themselves anymore. So they are exiles. They're not free. They're living in a foreign land. The temptation to to serve uh, and and honor the false gods of that land are going to be there. But God says, after 70 years, um, I'm going to bring you back. He says, when you call upon me, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to bring you back home. They're certainly not free. For us, freedom is not the highest virtue. There are moral rules that God has instilled in his word. Those are the virtues. Those are, are the things in the scripture that tells us how to respond to others, how to how to marry, who to marry, what our kids should be like, and what they should look like once they're raised, and what, what a marriage should look like, and what we should model to one another. Those are virtues. And what Benjamin Franklin says, and this is certainly not a, a Christian response, he's just saying uh, morally good people, he says... Only or morally good or virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. So as morality declines in in our country from one of the founding fathers, he says as it declines, we're going to have more need of a master or a ruler over us to tell us what to think or to tell us how to think. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Our our government, our courts, nor our political parties define virtue for life either. John Adams said this on October 11th of 1798. He said, our Constitution was made up, made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to a government of any other. One of the founding fathers, one of our presidents. This is what he said, not what I say. He said, "Our, our Constitution... So I think that, that makes us look at things and say, okay, uh, even our, our freedoms, some of us, we, we have this fear that, man, we might, we might have a, f- a freedom removed from us, and we think freedom is the highest virtue. It's not. Freedom only allows an opportunity for the rest of the virtues to flourish. So in this, God is providing virtues, For morality, marriage, and raising children. That's what is in this text. So, we could do this. We could just put our head in the sand. Just wait for the storm to pass. That looks really uncomfortable, doesn't it? Like, we could do that. We can just say, you know what, I'm just going to wait for the storm to pass. I'm going to put my head in the sand. After a certain amount of years, everything's going to be okay. Everything writes itself. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. Everything's going to be great. So, so I'm just going to ignore. I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to be connected. I'm not going to be informed. I'm just going to put my head in the sand and wait till the storm to pass. And then once it passes, then I'm going to wake up. looks super, super Uncomfortable. But I want you to know, in all of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, there were multiple times of a moral and cultural confusion. As a matter of fact, the writing of the epistles, there was all sorts of issues going on. In, in the, uh, the city of Ephesus, it was actually a lot like present-day America. It was the giant among the first century cities. It was very strategic. Um, it was it was the uh, the chief commercial center for that whole area. And there was a demand on that day that they would worship. Um, it was like a cult prostitute, and that was that was mandated by law. That they were that was what they were supposed to do. I, I can't even fathom this. And it was called Diana worship. And and it was that was law slash the the mode of worship. So even in the scriptures, and now just in me, just giving you that that snapshot. Now when you go through and read um, the letter to the church in Ephesus, just know that everything wasn't perfect. It never was. It never was. Things. Over and over and over in Rome, there, there was all sorts of that, too, was cult prostitution. There was gender confusion and cross dressing, and, and that in 1 Corinthians, in the church in Corinth, and there was also cult prostitutes there, and, and the laws were all corrupt, and uh, the Roman laws. And we can, we can do that and just run and hide. And say, things are terrible. Okay, now you just told me they've always been terrible. So now it just means I need to shove my head a little bit farther down in the sand. Or we can step up to the plate and say, I want to be a source of strength for the next generation. I want to be a source of strength in my church. I want to be a source of strength in my family. I want the source of strength. We can only do this through the Lord, of course. I want to be a source of strength for other people. So I'm not going to do what everybody else does. I'm not going to be a naysayer. I'm not going to stick my head in the sand and ignore that, that, that what is happening is reality. But instead, I'm going to choose through the strength of the Lord to make a difference. And I want to give you just a couple things. And I want to tell you, just flying through some things, the difference that a generation makes. The difference that a generation makes. The sexual revolution, sexual liberation, in generation right before mine, they came about they put into law the birth control pill. And the birth control pill first went out in 1965, it was for married people. Then in nineteen seventy two, the law was passed for all people. So that was, that was the first step to say, you know what, I can, I can have sex with whoever I want to, and if I don't want to have a child, I'm going to severely decrease the chances of it. So the birth control pill, whether it was made, uh, created in, in a positive way, this is, what, this is only a generation from mine. This is only one generation. So now the birth control pill comes in. Now everyone goes through. In 1965, it was just for married people, and, and there was some legislation obviously behind that. And in 1972, I believe that was the, the second round. It came through. and says, no, now everybody can. And now, we can, now that's, you can gain access to that without your parents knowing. Like, now it's just so commonplace. So now you, you can have sex openly Not letting anyone else know, and you can somewhat control if you have a child or not. So you can just have open sex. One generation. One generation. Past generations, they, they separated sex from marriage and marriage from childbearing with that birth control pill. That's what they did. They, they started to just rip things apart said, so, okay, now um, marriage and, and sex are not connected, and now child, childbearing and sex is not connected. So now, the, now we're seeking to be in, in control. One generation away, one generation started this. Part of the sexual revolution also was the expansive use of pornography. have some statistics on that. 29,250 people, 28,258 people view pornography every second. Every second. Every second. Because of, of pornography, it's led into human trafficking. As a matter of fact, um, 80% of trafficking involves sexual exploitation. Sexual liberation is the root cause. It's separating um, sex from the covenant of marriage and then also from childbearing. So now it's just a source of pleasure instead of having a defined purpose. It's just simply a pleasure to be had. So anybody can have it at any time they want. They don't have to be caught. Then with this, Early 70s, one generation, Roe versus Wade. Since then, 59 million children have been murdered. One generation. No-fault divorce. Ronald Reagan put this into play in 1970. So now, one generation, one generation. Now, in 1970, in, in the state of California, he set forth the law of no fault divorce of saying, you know what, we can get divorced without any any defined reason or, or cause. We can just do it. So in that moment, it just sent a just an avalanche through the and the rest of the states eventually gobbled it up in short order. And now we define what marriage is instead of going with the predefined definition that God has already laid forth. One generation. One generation. Just one. It's now no fault divorce. And now it leads us into the generation after mine. This would be my children's generation. 30% of them, of the millennials, say that having a successful marriage, only 30% say that, that having a successful marriage is one of the most important things in life. Only 30%. Only 30. One generation. Four in ten Americans say that marriage, four in ten Americans say that marriage is becoming obsolete. Four in ten Americans are saying that marriage is obsolete. One generation. What we do in our day matters. How you vote matters. What you believe matters How you behave off of that belief matters. All of those things are within one generation without the reference to the millennials, so there'd be two. And Jeremiah told God's people at the time that they're gonna be exiles for 70 years, two generations He's telling them that there is something so important. He's telling them through Jeremiah, God's telling the, God's people through Jeremiah that what you do matters. Live your life. Live your life to the fullest. Live your life. Live a godly life. Live a purposeful life. Live a forgiving life. Live a life that is, is so committed to the way of the Lord. Live a life that honors God First. When, when we live our life, and if you're married or you want to pursue marriage, put God first. If you raise children, raise children with the mindset that it is, it is the influence of God through the Holy Spirit, that you want to raise up godly kids through the, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, that they are going to be prosperous and godly, and they're going to be this best citizens. Because like we said a couple weeks ago, and you'll hear it again next week, the best citizens are followers of Jesus Christ, or at least it should be. We should be, and we want to raise our kids in such a way where they don't respond in fear, that they have a confidence in the Lord, so that when you get to the latter part of this text, when the promise of God comes through Jeremiah to the people, and he says, when I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise, I will bring you back from this place, for, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to prosper Plans for a future and plans for a hope. These are the virtues and values that we have to be instilling into our children. So they see beyond the cultural phenomenon, the political phenomenon right now. You see the difference that one generation makes. And for me, this isn't even a doom and gloom thing. Because if all of these things can be had in one generation going, I believe, every one of them that I just mentioned, negative... We can do the same thing through the power of God in a positive in the next generation. Go to, in your Bible, if you would, please, to Hebrews 12. We're going to land here. I'm going to give you some application, some ways that you can, you can not just take home, but you can do today to help in this effort. Hebrews 12 It's the New Testament. So go to the right in your Bible, Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 17. So this this is a message in this text. This is for the Christian. If you're not a Christian, you can kind of tune this out if you want. I believe there's some part of this even if you haven't committed your life to Christ I believe there's some part of this that you really want or you, that you may believe is true but you can make that decision or for every Christian starting in verse 14 make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy so make every effort to live in peace with all men as far as you are concerned live at peace with all men as far as you're concerned, if your life is hostility, it does not honor God. You cannot influence people for the gospel if your life is one of hostility. If your life is consumed with fear, it limits your ability to convey the glory of God. And your life will not be at peace. So make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. To be holy, to live a godly life, to to live a gospel-informed moral ethic, to live a gospel-informed spiritual life, to live a gospel-informed marital ethic, to be holy, not like the world around you, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's what it says in the rest of that verse. So if you want your purpose in doing it, he says, unless you're holy, no one's going to see the Lord. What they're going to see is the darkness around them. Light pierces the darkness. The gospel pierces the darkness. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root comes up to cause trouble or defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inherent rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. The time ran out for him. He didn't want to pursue God when, when the time was right. He he didn't want the fruit of righteousness when the tree was ripe. He wanted to do what he wanted to do in in defiance of God. But then when he reflected upon what he did, the time ran out. And even though he wept, it says in this text that he, he cried... And I could just see him crying profusely of thinking, God, let me have this back, let me have this back, let me have this back. But the time ran out. It says that Esau was godless. Afterward, after he had made his decision, he wanted that blessing, but it was gone. So for you and I, if we make every effort to live in peace with all men, that's a great bit of influence. If we live a holy life, light pierces the darkness. It's great influence. If we live, if we live our, our marital life, committed to the Lord, where we say, you know what, I understand that, that there's a redefinition of marriage and all of that, but as for me and my house, as, Ger- as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So y'all do what y'all want to do, but, it, but as for my house, we're going to serve the Lord, and my marriage is going to be upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, that men, that we would sit back and say and believe with our heart that we will love our wives as Christ Jesus loved the church. And that wives, that you would honor your husband. That you would put him, you would lift him up and put him in high esteem. Not tear him down like the rest of the world does. But you would uphold him. That you would believe well of him. That you would encourage him to do the right thing. Instead of just reminding him when he's not. We're supposed to live at peace with all people. So let me ask you this question. How are we shaping the current generation right now? How are we shaping the current generation? See, I love these questions because these are questions that you can't squirt away from. You can't can't pull yourself out from the weight of this. How are we currently shaping this generation? You know what's unfortunate? We're not gonna know the answer to that for about another 40 years. But what we can do now is we can try and live at peace with everyone. We can live holy lives, set apart lives for God, commit our marriages to God, do our our best through the power of the Holy Spirit to raise godly children so that we could be an example for others. So that we, when we invest in our marriage and we invest in our spouse and we build up our kids and we shape them with the gospel, then they see things not through the lens of fear. So that they see that there is an ultimate authority and his name is Jesus Christ. And that there is an ultimate rule book and there's an ultimate ethic of which God governs for all human flourishing. And it is the word of God. And it does not turn void. It's always on time. Never expires.